And as I would hear these analogies, uh, swimming in the ocean and, and that life's really hard and we have to navigate around sin, we have to navigate around other, other religions, we have to navigate around physical pain and emotional pain and, and even spiritual pain. And you're swimming through the ocean, you're dodging those things and those waters and the storm is hitting and it's really difficult and God throws out a life vest. He throws out this life vest and if you work hard enough, you're able to maneuver and grab that life vest and put it on and snap it in and that God saves you. Those analogies are incomplete. That you're not swimming, you're not drowning. That scripture teaches us, this passage teaches us that you are dead at the bottom of the ocean. You are dead, lifeless and cold at the bottom of the ocean and that God, rich in his mercy and his love and his immeasurable grace, he reaches down to the depths that he picks up your dead body, that he lifts you up and he breathes life into your lifeless body. That's what we see in this text. That's what we see in scripture. If you're a Christian, that's what you have experienced. Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. If you don't, there should be one close to you. Look at the, the armrest on the chair next to you. Uh, grab that. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's totally fine. Grab it, turn to the table of contents at the very beginning. That's why it's there. Uh, you can find that. Just go about three quarters of the way through your Bible, New Testament. God eats popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, so maybe that, that helps you also. We want you to hold the Bible in your hand. We will have it on the screen. Uh, you can use your app. That's okay. Uh, but we want you to look at the Bible yourself. I want you to hold me accountable that what we're looking at is God's Word. Before we get into the passage this morning, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, would love to do so after the service. Uh, if you're new or if you're really not connected, this is a really good Sunday to join us because right after the service, we're going to have what we call starting point. Uh, it's going to be right down here on this side section, right down front, right after the service. I'll be there. Some of our leaders will be there. If you've been coming for a little while, you're not connected. If this is your first Sunday, it's a really good time to join us. And this is your first uh, next step with us to get involved and plugged in and learn about what our church is about, to ask questions, to meet some other leaders. And so even if you didn't sign up for this, you can stay after. Just come down front right here. We'll give you some coffee and, and hang out for starting point. Uh, we've been in this series in the book of Ephesians now three weeks. Today is three weeks. We gave you guys a study guide. We still have some back there at the Connect desk for $5. Uh, there's no way in just 13 weeks that you can get just one hour a week on a Sunday everything that's in this book. There's too much, right? It's too excessive. It's too glorious. God's grace is too glorious. And so we want you to follow along during the week. Some of you picked up a study guide. I've heard about a few of you getting together and planning to get together to study that on your own. And that is awesome. That's what we want to see uh, happen throughout this series. And I know God's going to bless you through that. But if you, if you haven't been here, the first week, what we talked about and Paul laid out for us was this explosion of praise because of God's glorious grace. That who we are in Christ, that, that God has chosen us, he's redeemed us, he's adopted us, he's united us, he's forgiven us, he's sealed us. And we saw that beautiful picture in chapter one. Well, today as we get into chapter two, we're told how that happens. 
how we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's amazing. We're really glad you're here. And this is a good opportunity for you to hear one of the most clear, powerful explanations of the gospel that we have. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. That's what you're going to hear this morning. So I'm glad you're here for that. But even if you know Jesus, and if you've known him for a year or 10 years or your whole life, this is good for you to be here as well. If you think about it, Paul writes this. He starts out the letter to the saints at Ephesus. He's writing to Christians. Ephesians 2, Savannah just read it. He says, you were dead, the ways in which, which you once walked. And so he's talking to Christians about who they are without Jesus. And so Paul thought, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Christians needed to hear this passage, that we need to be reminded of who we were without Christ and then who we are in Christ and how that happened. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. This is for all of us. And here's the big idea. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. We'll have it on the screen for you. We're going to break this down in the rest of our time together. It's this, that the problem is worse than you think, the solution is greater than you imagine, and the purpose is better than you expect. And so first, the problem is worse than you think. And if you look at the text with me, you see that, don't you? And you were dead. The problem right off the bat is death, and that we're dead in trespasses and sins, that trespasses, that all of us in this room, that all of us in the world, that we've gone places we never should have gone, right? We saw the sign, and we thought about it, and we jumped the fence anyway and went to places we should never have gone. We have trespassed against God. We've also sinned. Literally, we've missed the mark of God's perfect standard. If you think about it, it's like a target, it's like a target in archery where you're shooting arrows at something and you're trying to hit the bullseye. And the bullseye, in this case, is God's perfect standard, his holiness, his righteousness. And whether you miss that by five inches or by five feet, you still miss that target, right? And so what Paul is laying out for us is that we're dead in our trespasses and we're dead in our sins, that we've all missed the mark. No matter how close we've gotten at times, we've all missed it. So if you think about it, some of you have lived hard lives, right? You think about your past, and I don't have to convince you that you've missed the mark. You think about the ways you've indulged in money, in power, in sex, and you think, Tim, I have missed the mark. That's why I'm here today. I, I know I need Jesus. And, and you don't have to be convinced of that, but some of you, you were born in a pew, Right? I mean, you've always been in church. You've never really done anything crazy. If you're asked to share your testimony, you're like, mine's kind of boring. But you need to know you've missed the mark as well, and I think this will help you. Just think about these two examples, idolatry and adultery. Idolatry. That I would have to guess that none of you in this room have a statue by your bed that you kneel down before at night and you pay homage to. Maybe some of you do, and we can talk about that later. But I would have to guess none of you have that, but there's ways in which we are idolatrous in our actions. You think about the times where you even just have the mentality, maybe you never say it, but you have the mentality that I want to be in control, that I want to call the shots, that you think about your money, your career as mine, and God begins to ask you to sacrifice some of that, to move it to some other places, 
to step out in faith and, and do something radical in the name of Jesus, and you think, no, this is, this is my money. When you think about tithing, you think, how am I going to give that much money back to God? Instead of thinking, how is he going to give you 90% and let you give 10% of it away? You, you think, this is, this is mine. This is my job. I've worked for this. That we all have times, even if you haven't lived a crazy lifestyle, we all have times, don't we, where we think that way. Where we think, I'm in control of this thing and I want to be. The Bible talks about that and it's idolatry. That we're putting ourselves over God. That we're looking at God's design and, and saying, I know better. So we've all missed the mark. We've all missed the mark in something like idolatry. We've all missed it in something like adultery. Now, none of you, maybe some of you have, maybe uh, some of you have done this in your past. Maybe this is part of your past. But maybe for some of you it isn't. But there's been times where maybe you haven't physically, emotionally cheated on your spouse, you may have done that with your eyes. Jesus talks about that. He says, if you look at a woman lustfully, that you have committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus is going to say, even if you haven't gone all the way there, even if you've done it with your eyes, with your heart, that you have committed adultery. And those are just sins of commission, right? There's also sins of omission. Uh, commission are sins that we have done, things we have done, right? Sins of omission are things we have failed to do. And so when you don't worship God as supreme, as creator and sustainer, so when you don't love him as you ought, we don't love your neighbor as you ought, we don't serve other people, when you do get caught up in your own selfish desires, that those are sins of omission, and so all of us has, have missed the mark. It could be a lot or it could be a little, but we all still miss it. And so listen, when Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, whether you grew up in the church or you didn't, whether you have a past that you're ashamed of or a past that you're like, well, I'm not so bad, whatever the case may be, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that this affects all of us, that as we look at life, the consequences may be different, right? The consequences may be different. If you actually commit adultery physically, emotionally, the consequences of that, they're severe. If you just do that within your heart, maybe nobody finds out, maybe nobody really knows, but your condition is still the same, isn't it? It's still the same. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That doesn't just mean the people on the news or in prison. That's you and that's me. And as we look at it, there's lots of factors influencing this. As you think about psychologists in our day, and maybe you've done this before as well, we debate, don't we? We debate, like, what is the core issue of the problem? Is it environmental is the problem our upbringing, our surroundings? We're, we have in the backyard of our church one of the most impoverished, crime-ridden parts of our city. And as you look at that, some of you know that really well because you help serve those people. As you look at that, is it because their parents left them when they were little? Is it a generational problem? Is it just environmental? And then we think about, is it, is it evil? Maybe even if you're not a Christian, you think, is there some kind of spirit at work? Is there some kind of force of evil? The third option, is it just within? Are we just selfish? 
So is it external? Is it internal? Is it supernatural? When you look at the Bible, listen, when you look at the Bible, the answer is yes. It's yes. It's all three. One commentator said it this way. He said, we're held captive under a triple tyranny. And you see that play itself out in verses 2 and 3. It's the course, the ways, the patterns of this world. That's the external. That's the environment. Look at the verses with me. You see the prince of the power of the air. That's the influence of Satan and the supernatural. You see the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. That's our selfishness, the internal. That it is external. It's supernatural, and it's internal, that there's a problem that goes really deep. And you see, a lot of us in our culture, and as you think about this, as you talk to people, they'll say, well, no, we're generally good people, right? I mean, you just give people a second chance. They're, they're generally good. They'll come around. If we can just tap into our potential, just the right puzzle pieces of education, of policy, of science, they can all fit together together. And who knows what we can do, right? Have you heard that before? That's the hope as we enter into a new election. Maybe not this election. But generally, that's when we align with parties, is we think if we can just get all this right, if we can just organize it the right way, that, that everyone will get better, that everything will get better, because we all have a basic good inside of us. Just need to tap into it, right? But I want you to think about this. For all our technological advances, and we have a lot, for all the policies, for all the scientific discoveries, for all the research and experience that we've had in our history, why is it that so many things still plague us? Why can you look around and after thousands of years, there's still conflict, there's still wars, there's still racism, there's still abuse, I was listening to a lady talk the other day, and she was talking about how she had been molested about once a week, every week of her childhood from when she was three years old. Why does that happen? How are these things still happening? Why haven't we figured it out yet? Presidents have come and gone. Policies have been enacted. Science has developed. Our technology is amazing. You're looking at a Bible on your phone. We haven't figured it out. What's wrong? The Bible says it's because there's an evil around us. It's external. It's supernatural. And there's also an evil within us. It's internal. And so there's a problem, and we are helpless. Listen, we are helpless to fix it ourselves. And that's why when Paul looks for a word to describe our condition, it is dead. He says in verse 3 that we're by nature children of wrath, that this is who we are, right? Welcome to Phoenix Bible Church. That we are dead, that you are dead, that you're by nature children of wrath, that there's a problem, and it's worse than you think. We said this a few weeks ago, that penalty is related to position, right? That if you vandalize my house, there's a different penalty associated with that than if you vandalize the White House, right? 
Penalty is related to position. Well, if you think about it, Scripture describes God as Lord. He's Lord over all. That means he created everything, that he sustains everything, that he's Lord. Everything is his. And through sin, through our trespasses, we have stained the world that's his. We have vandalized his world. And there's a penalty associated with that position. When you sin against an infinite Lord, there's infinite punishment. And so by nature, we're dead. We're children of wrath. And some of us, we don't like hearing that, right? We don't enjoy hearing about that. Like maybe right now you're thinking, well, Tim, what's the context? What does it say in the Greek? Because maybe there's a way to soften this blow. And you need to know that what Paul is doing is he's correctly diagnosing our problem. You see, what's interesting is you look at our world, everyone agrees there's a problem. You flip on the news, the anchorman, as he shares these stories, these awful stories in our culture, you can hear it in his intonation. You can see it in his face that he knows there's a problem. He's not excited about talking about murder or theft or, or, or racism or any of those things. He's not excited about that. You see it even when you flip on the news from the anchorman. You see it in Oprah, right? She's always trying to give stuff away because she knows there's a problem. You see it when you walk into a bookstore. Some of you know what those are. It's like Amazon, it's just down the street. When you walk into a bookstore, you'll always see, it never fails, millions of self-help books. They're everywhere. Why? Because everyone agrees we need some help. There's a problem. Where we disagree is the magnitude of that problem. Now, why is that important? It's because the magnitude of the problem is directly linked to the magnitude of the solution. Last night, I was walking around our house, and I realized my foot was really hurting, and I started to walk kind of different with a limp, and I thought, maybe something's in my foot, and so I look at my foot. I'm not very flexible, uh, so I get my wife to help me with that, and I say, sweetie, like, what's wrong with my foot? Is something in there? And she looks at it, and there's this, like, black spot, and she says, how long has this been in there? And I said, I don't know. I just started hurting today. And she said, well, it looks like it's been in there a while. It looks like it's under your skin. And in that moment, if my wife had got me some Neosporin and, you know, put that on there, maybe got some lotion, like, does that feel better, sweetie? Maybe got a fun Band-Aid from one of our kids, like Batman, slap that on there. Like, and we had this cute moment, moment where we hugged it out. Like, my wife takes care of me. She serves me well, right? That would be awesome. Until later in life, my foot falls off, right? Because there's something in my foot. You can't just slap a Batman Band-Aid on top of that, right? You can't just put some lotion or some Neosporin on that. It's not dry skin. You can't just massage it. There's a problem. There's something in my foot. So what did she do? She goes and gets the tweezers. She's ruthless, right? She starts digging around in there. I'm like crying in pain, not really, but it's just salty residue, And she digs this stick. It was a little piece of stick that was in my foot. I don't know how long it's been there. It's gross. But there was a problem. Listen, my foot needed surgery, right? I didn't need a Band-Aid. I didn't need her to make me smile. I needed the truth. 
you think about it, if you go to the doctor and he comes to you somberly and says, I hate to tell you this, but you have 80% blockage in your arteries. And you think, man, what am I going to do? And he says, no, 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 it's okay. We're going to do this. You have Advil at home, right? You just take one of those in the morning and one of those at night, and you're going to be good. And you sit back and you think, really? Like 80% blockage in Advil? Okay, that's amazing, right? No surgery involved? Like, I'm good to go. And, and, and you say, really? And he says, well, no, you actually, you need to be gluten-free also. That's really going to fix it. And you're just like, really? That's Advil and gluten-free? Like, I can get behind that. And you have 80% blockage in your arteries. If a doctor did that, not only would he get bad reviews on Yelp, but it would be considered criminal, right? There'd be a lawsuit coming his way. He'd probably get his license revoked because he needs to give you an accurate diagnosis. He needs to give you a hard truth, not just even out of love or care, but out of responsibility because he's a doctor, right? You see, the truth, the accurate diagnosis may not make you smile, but it can make you well. And that God and his grace he gives you an accurate diagnosis. Not just in this text, but in lots of texts in the Bible, if you'll actually read it. God is gracious enough to accurately diagnose our problem so that we can accurately see a solution. That Paul is, is gracious enough to accurately diagnose our problem to give you a hard truth. That we need to be gracious enough with the people around us to accurately diagnose their problem to give them the hard truth. That it may not make you smile and it may not make them smile, but it can make you well. And so we need to understand there, there's a problem and we don't need to water it down. You see, if we water down the problem to you've made some mistakes... To everybody has a past. To your ship's sail is just a little bit torn. It's positive, encouraging. K-Love reminded me this week. If we water down the problem to that, what's the problem with that? Well, we miss the magnitude of it. And therefore, we miss the magnitude of the solution. You see, the reason Jesus died is because you're dead. If you had just had a broken boat, Jesus could have built another one for you. He was a craftsman. He was a carpenter. And the problem is you didn't need wood to be crafted into something. You needed somebody to hang on wood. You needed Jesus to be crucified, to take your death on your behalf. You needed Jesus to go from death to life because you needed to go from death to to life. Do you see it? We understand the problem. Paul gives us the problem because he's gracious with us. Maybe some of you are hearing this like, Tim, why so down? I'm just giving you the truth. And that is the most gracious, that is the most loving thing I can do. Because maybe you've never heard it before. Maybe you've heard it, but you become comfortable with your sin. And God wants to sober you this morning, even if you're a Christian, to realize your sin, your trespasses, that they required death. That the sins you committed this week, that the cycles of sins, 
that if you look at your life honestly, they've been there for decades. Paul, God, is trying to wake you up and to see these things cause death. Don't get comfortable with that. This should sober you to repentance. Even if you already know Jesus, that this is the gravity, this is the magnitude of our problem, that it's worse than we think. If we just ended there, then that would be depressing. Right? Uh, We wouldn't have songs to sing after this if we just ended there, but thankfully Paul doesn't end there. He goes on to explain that the solution is greater than you imagine. Look at the text with me, verse 4. One of the most theologically rich words in all of the Bible, but, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So if you look at that text, look on the screen, look on your phone, look at your Bible, who is responsible for all the actions in that passage? Is it us? Does it talk about church attendance? Does it talk about us making ourselves more lovable? Does it talk about us deciding to turn over a new leaf? It talks about God, that he is rich in mercy, that he loved us, that he is gracious with us. You see, that's why that word but, that transition, is one of the most theological rich words in all of the New Testament because this is a transition from here's what you brought to the table. Here's your condition, that you were helpless, that it was worse than you thought, but God. Right? And that every one of us needs to have that moment, that but God moment. You see, you were dead, and then you were raised to life, which is why some of us will say, oh, I've been a Christian my whole life. No. You need to have that moment. You don't need to remember the the day. You don't remember the time. But you need to have that moment where you went from death to life. You can be six. You can be 16. You can be 66. But you need to have that moment where you experience but God. It's that moment when you have an infant and she is crying relentlessly throughout the night. And you're wondering, like, is this ever going to break Am I ever going to get any sleep? And and you and your spouse, you start looking around for a pacifier desperately, right? You start searching for it desperately because you think, we got to stop the crying. She's got to go to sleep. And then you realize it's in a blanket wrapped up in her crib, that it was right there the whole time. But God, right? But God. It's that moment in Karate Kid. Hang with me. Not the, the newer versions, not the Will Smith's kids version, not the, the other one with the girl in it. The original karate kid, Ralph Macchio. Have you seen this? Come on, I need some interaction. Yeah, you've seen Karate Kid, okay? I just need to know we're working on the same page here. It's that moment when Daniel's son, it looks like he's done, and the other side is yelling out, give him the body bag, 
And then all of a sudden, he looks at Mr. Miyagi. Have you seen this? He looks at Mr. Miyagi. They just nod at each other. And then he busts out the crane. That's this moment. It's but God that everything looks hopeless and helpless. But God intervenes. You need to have that moment. If you can't look at your life, at your past, all your church services, all your church attendance, all your Bible reading, all your Christian t-shirts, if you can't look through all that and think, did I ever experience that? Then you may not have experienced it. Because listen, it's a big deal when you go from death to life. It's but God who is rich in mercy and his grace that he loved you that he completely transforms your situation. That's why Paul uses this death to life because he wants to make sure you know there needs to be a radical transformation. You need to have experienced that firsthand. Not did somebody else experience it, not did your parents experience it and tell you about it. You need to experience that. Have you experienced that moment? You need to experience it if you haven't because without it, you're dead. But praise be to God, he, rich in mercy, he loved us, he showed his grace toward us, and he pulled us out of our death. You see, some of you in this moment, maybe you have had that experience, but as you walk in here this morning, your marriage, it's hanging on by a thread. Maybe you barely made it here this morning because you guys were arguing you're in conflict all the time. It never seems like it's going to end. Maybe as you look at your daily life, you think, man, I have trouble getting up in the morning. I want to do good things for people. I want to serve the poor. I want to do all these things. But it's just, it's such a battle. It's such a wrestling. You need to be reminded of your but God moment. You need to go back to the truth of who you are, that you've been raised to life. That you have a God who is rich in mercy, who is gracious, who loved you. That, listen. He did that when you were his enemy. He did that when you were his enemy. Now you're his child. Do you think he's going to discard you? He pursued you. He came and got you when you were his enemy. Now you're his child. Do you think because of your your marriage, do you think because of your lack of self-discipline, he's going to now discard you? No. He loved you. He came and got you. He showed his grace to you even when you were dead. When you were by nature a children of wrath, God came and got you. Now you're his child. You need to know that because as you know that truth, as that sinks in, it'll start to transform your your marriage. It'll start to motivate you in the morning to read scripture. It'll start to motivate you to exchange some things in your life, some comforts, some conveniences, so that you can contribute to what God has already ordained for you to participate in, which we'll see in a moment. You need to have that but God moment. You need to remember that but God moment. That even when you were dead, helpless, and lifeless, he saved you. Look at the text, verse 5, he made you alive. Verse 6, he raised you and he seated you with God. Our bumper video at the beginning of this sermon that you've seen over the last few weeks, that's what that's talking about. The idea, the analogy of that we're swimming in the ocean and that there's all sorts of other religions, there's all sorts of things and struggles in life and it's hard and we have to navigate that. Like we're just swimming around and and we get lucky enough to find a life vest that's Jesus and we snap it on ourselves and we decide to follow Jesus. 
And then there's another analogy that, no, it's actually a little bit worse than that. We're kind of drowning. We're taking in water. Like, we're drowning, but God throws out a a lifesaver, and and we put our neck above the ring, and and he saves us. And what we said in that video was that those analogies are incomplete, that that really you should picture it, that you're dead at the bottom of the ocean, that you are lifeless and cold. Listen, that's why you need to be saved. That's why you need to be made alive, that he breathes life into your lifeless body, that he literally, it says in the text, he raises you up, that that's what you have experienced in that but God moment. And as you think about that, it goes on to say that he has seated us. So he's saved you, he's rescued you, he's raised you up, but he's also seated you. Now, if you look at the text, Verse 6, it says he seated us. What tense is that? Help me out, grammar majors. What tense is that? It's past, right? So we've already been not only saved, raised, we've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you see the implications of that? That when Jesus went to the cross to, to raise you up, that he knew all the things you were going to do, right? He knew all the ways that you were going to fail. He knew all the sins of commission and omission in your life. And knowing all of that, he not only saves you, he not only lets you hang around the house, he gives you a seat at the table. He brings you close. That he's already done that. You don't prove your way to God. You've already gained approval through the cross. He has seated you. That's why in verse 7, it says that he puts, he shows the display of his immeasurable riches of grace. Because it's immeasurable, it's extravagant, it's so wealthy, it's so glorious that you could never look at that and say, I did that. (laughs) That's why it says in a couple of verses later, there's no boasting. That maybe if God just saved us, maybe if you did put on the life vest, maybe if you did kind of nuzzle up under the lifesaver, maybe you could take credit for that and say, well, yeah, God saved me. It was kind of a partner deal. We were lock arms together. But that God saved you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that he raised you and that he seated you, knowing all the things you would do and failed to do, that is immeasurable grace. That is glorious grace. And that should make us grateful. That should make us a worshipful people. That it's immeasurable. We never get tired of that. You see, our problem is worse than we think. But praise be to God, we have a solution in Jesus Christ that is greater than we could ever imagine. That's what you step into as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God. But it doesn't end there. The last point, that our purpose is better than you expect. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, look at those verses. He sums it up. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So it's not a reward for all the things you've done. It's a gift you receive freely. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. You can't look at what just happened and think I had something to do with that. You can't boast. For we are his 
workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all a gift that Paul summarizes, you've been saved by grace through faith. That he does it, that it's by grace and through faith, we just respond in belief. We embrace it. That it's all a gift. That you are his workmanship. Literally, that word in the original language is poema. It's the idea that you are God's poem, that you are God's artwork, that he's putting you on display, that he has prepared that beforehand. If you think about the the statue of David, Michelangelo's statue of David, I heard one pastor talk about this, and he talked about how this statue of David, that originally this, this, these stones, the marble that were used to make the statue of David, were passed over by many other artists because there were some flaws in them. But then Michelangelo comes along, and he, he prepares, and he works through those flaws, and he makes this statue of David. And the statue of David, I don't know if you know this, I mean, people travel from all over the world to go look at that. It's a big, big deal. It's this workmanship that was made with flawed stones. And if you think about that, you could never look at that and say, wow, look at those stones. <laughs> like David, if he could talk the statue, he would never look at himself and be like, I'm so impressive. I mean, how did I get to look this good? He would never say that. Why? Because somebody else crafted that. They took that flawed stone and they made it into this beautiful statue. In the same way, listen, in the same way, you could also never look at that statue. David, the statue, could never look at himself and say, I'm worthless. I'm just a bunch of stones. Nobody even cares about me. And you would say, dude, you're David. <laughs> you're David. I made you a statue of David. I mean, people come and they travel all over the world to look at you. You see, because we are the workmanship of God, you're his workmanship, that it doesn't matter who your parents were, like in a good way or a bad way. Maybe you didn't even have parents. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it says on your birth certificate. It doesn't matter your accolades as a child. It doesn't matter all the things you did in a positive way, all the things that you failed to do in a negative way. It doesn't matter all the sins that you've committed, all the things that have been done to you, that what Paul is saying is that you're his workmanship. We're going to talk about this uh, in the announcements, and we have it as an opportunity for you October 9th uh, to hear about foster care and adoption. We're going to have a representative from Christian Family Care locally to come and talk about what that looks like. If you don't know some of the stats, my wife works in this field. Uh, there's an epidemic, a crisis in the state of Arizona with foster care and adoption. There's so many kids, my wife works for a private agency that they help handle the foster care because the state can't handle it. There's too many kids that are neglected and abandoned. And as you think about that, sorry. As you think about that, there's a lot of kids that will, will never know who their 
who their real parents are. They, they may know an idea of that. They may hear about it later in life, but, but maybe they really never know. And maybe the interactions they have with them, they don't seem like a mom and a dad and how they should be, right? That if those kids trust in Jesus, that they can know that they're his workmanship. That God the Father prepared beforehand that you would be his workmanship. No matter what it says on your birth certificate, no matter who your parents are, no matter who was there at your birth, that God says you're his workmanship. And that if you're in Christ, we all get to experience that. Isn't that amazing? And so he saves us. He raises us up. He seats us with him because we're his workmanship, and he's preparing works for you to operate in. So we're not saved by works, but it leads to works. This is our purpose, that no one could ever look at this and say, like, wow, woe is me. I can't really accomplish anything. That no one could ever look at this and say, I've done it all. That no, we're his workmanship, and he's provided good works for us to function in. Well, how do we know, right? How do we know what those good works are? Some of you are trying to figure that out. You're trying to figure it out in your career. You're trying to figure it out in your vocation. You're like, what am I really good at? Some of you are college students. You're trying to figure out what is that going to be in the future. How am I going to participate in good works? And listen, maybe you don't know, but you can start somewhere. Another thing that's coming up in our church is this thing called Unite Phoenix on October 8th. It's a Saturday where all these churches in the Central Valley, all these nonprofits are going to come together and serve our city, that you can start somewhere. You can start somewhere in those good works, and you can go on a journey to discover how has God prepared good works for me to participate in. But you got to start somewhere. We get the joy of figuring that out because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, that we have a purpose that's better than we expect. And that's something we never regret, is it? Because God has prepared those works in advance, that's something we never regret. We don't ever go serve people. We don't ever do the dishes. We don't ever love our spouse, love our kids as we ought. We don't ever do that and think, man, I wish I'd have watched more TV. Right? That never happens. Because why? Because God has laid this out. He has prepared you. He has wired you to work this way. As I think about our church, Right? There's lots of things we want to accomplish as a church. We're a little less than two years old as a church, and there's so many dreams we have to impact this city, to take a people who, it's an amazing city, it's an amazing group of people, but we struggle with things like convenience, with things like consumerism, and we want to see that people, the love of Jesus, move that people over here to where they're connecting and they're contributing where we are affecting the lostness of our city. We are affecting things like the adoption, like the foster care crisis in tangible ways. We are impacting this community and other communities by serving others, by declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Like, we have that dream as a church. And sometimes, maybe you wonder this, maybe I wonder this, like, can that really happen? And you need to know, as we look at this text, that it can, that God has wired us for this, that he's laid these good works out for you and for us as a church. All we have to do and what we get to do is we get to walk in them. That should encourage us today that that is our purpose. And listen, this is for all of us. If you know Jesus, if you don't, this is a truth that we need to embrace this morning. This is glorious grace. And so I want to give us a few ways that we can do that as we close. 
How do we live this out? I'm going to give us four categories. The first category is if you're comfortable with your sin, then this should sober you to repent. If there's sins in your life that, if you're honest, you don't look at them as dead, as, as sins, even as trespasses against a holy God, this passage should sober you to repentance, that you should do a 180, that all those sins in your life, all those trespasses, that you should turn, and you should turn to God in this moment. That if you're overcome by shame, that this should free you to rest. Maybe some of you, you think about the things in your past. They're not in your life anymore, but you just can't let them go. You know those things? Maybe it is an adultery of your past. Maybe it is you did something you did when you were little. Maybe it was something done to you. And if you can't connect with God, you can't connect with others because there's shame. You need to see that Jesus went from death to life to bring you from death to life to conquer your shame. And that you can rest. You can be free from that. The third thing, if you're impressed with your works, if you look at your life and you think, well, I've done some good things, I've brought some things to the table, this should humble you to reflect. That as you reflect, you would worship and think, wow, I can't believe that God did all of this for me and I get to receive it as a gift. And lastly, if you're stagnant in your faith, this should activate you to respond. It should lead to good works. That we don't look at all this and think, wow, God is so gracious, now we can do whatever we want. And we think, how can we love God? Because he has first loved us. How can we be gracious with others because he has been so gracious with us? It activates us. It should activate us as a church to good works. I don't know how you walk in here today. I don't know what spectrum what part of the spectrum you fall into, what category you fall into, but we need to take a moment and reflect and rest and respond. And that's what we're gonna do now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this truth that you saved us by grace through faith, that you made us alive together with Christ even while we were dead. God, I pray that that's something we would memorize and meditate on and it would be our life's mission to live that out, to make sure everyone around us knows that truth as well. That our family member that we're not sure about, that our spouse, that we don't really talk about this or engage in this, that we would have these discussions, we would pray for this to become a reality in our lives. God, I pray that for these men and women as, as we sing, as we respond, as we take communion, as we remember what Jesus did on our behalf, that his death saves us. God, that we would reflect on that and live out of that truth, that it would motivate us to live differently today, to, to make decisions differently with our time, with our talent, with our treasure because of what you have accomplished on our behalf. God, I pray for the things that get in the way of that, that you would just help us repent from those things now so that we can worship and give our lives to you. Father, help us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.